my nap. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. Really honored that you chose to be here with us today. Um, before we jump into what we're talking about, just if you're a parent, you have a kid in the room, I just want you to know the message today, what we're going to talk about, uh, I'm rating it PG-13. So unless you want to have a conversation about a subject you don't want to talk about yet, this would be a great moment for you to take your kids back to the kids' ministry. You can go all the way down the hall, um, up the stairs, and uh, we have a great kids' ministry. In fact, we're retooling our kids' ministry to fit with uh, the developmental needs of a first through third grader and a fourth and fifth grader, remodeling the space right now, recruiting people to serve in those areas. So uh, if you're game for that, just I wanted to give you a heads up, parents, so that you can have an opportunity to do that. Uh, but there you go. That's that's wanted you to know that. Before we jump into what we're going to talk about today, let me give you a uh, something we want to do once a year. We did it last year. We're going to do it again this year. Um, a, a way to help you live the life uh, of a person who follows Jesus. We want to give you a tool that's going to enable you to become like Jesus. Now, I will tell you, on the list of people that I know that, uh, that I would say, man, that person is killing it in terms of following Jesus, and they have a life that's like Jesus, every single one of them, without an exception, is what I would call a generous person. They're a giver in every sense of the word. They'll give you their time, they'll give you their ear, they'll give you their resources, and they'll give you your, their money. Uh, and so we want to help you learn to be a generous person because our understanding about God is that God is generous. In fact, the, probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. Probably seen that at an NFL game, right? John, the guy with the weird wig, he holds up the sign, John 3.16. You know what it says? For God so loved the world that he, do you know what the word is right there? Gave, right? He gave his only son. Our understanding about God is that God is a giver and that we're meant to imitate God. And so there are a bunch of us around here who give a portion, not only of our time and our energy, but of our resources and our money to make the mission and ministry of this church happen. I'm not asking you to do something I don't do. My family lives on 90% of our income, and we give 10% of our income to the mission and ministry of this church. And uh, there are a bunch of people who do the same thing. And we want to give you an on-ramp to doing that. Now, here's, here's what people have said that are a lot smarter than me and wiser than me about this whole subject. They've said that there are basically three conversions that a person goes through. Um, they go, persons go through a, a conversion of the head, so they say, man, there's a God, and, and I, I got to get my life under his control somehow. Uh, there, there must be a God. And then there's the conversion of the heart that says, I want to be close to that God. And many of you have had that experience, and we baptize you, and, and it's life-changing. But then there's this third one that's very challenging for all of us, and it's what people call the conversion of the wallet, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's my money. What are you going to do? But what, what people that are following Jesus understand about money is that money is not about money. Money is about change. That dollars become change. Dollars become changed lives. And so when you give, you give to support the mission of, uh, and ministry of this church here and literally around the world. In fact, later in the year, we'll have um, uh, Scott Dooley, who's the, one of the doctors at Kujip Nazarene Hospital that we support, will be here and tell you about how you're impacting that part, portion of the world. But the, the tool the means by which people have learned to be generous, the on-ramp is what many of us call the tithe. Now, the tithe means a tenth. In the scriptures, it means a tenth. In fact, my son, um, and when you're the pastor's kid, you get used in sermon illustrations all the time, so I made him take a picture of himself. He shoveled a driveway a few weeks ago, earned 15 bucks, 
Um, I did half the driveway, so it really should be seven and a half dollars, but that's, we're not talking about that. Um, but he earned 15 bucks, and so we're teaching him, listen, you give, you give, you're, you're going to be a giver, and so he, that, there's his dollar fifty that he's bringing today um, to give, because we're teaching our kids to do that. But this on-ramp is the tithe, it's a tenth. So we're challenging you for 90 days, and this is, we do this once a year, to say, try for 90 days giving of your money to support the mission and ministry of God's kingdom. Um, through this local church. And so, it, and, and here's the deal, right? We live on 90% of our income. If you get to the point where you cannot pay a bill, you come see me. We'll make sure you're taken care of. Because this is the one thing in the scriptures that God says, listen, test me in this. I'll take care of you. So we're throwing that out there. We're, we're, we want this for you. We're not trying to get something from you. This is just, if you want to engage in this challenge, we'd love it if you did it, okay? Commercial over, move on, right? Thank you very much. Here's what I want to talk to you about today, Okay. I want to talk to you about how your appetites and the hungers of your body can derail your life. Uh, I, I've, everybody's weird. Uh, you just have to figure out where they're weird. They appear normal at first. When you get to know them, you get to know them, you find out where they're weird. I'll tell you where, one of the places I'm weird. I have these weird kind of phobias. Um, when I pull up to Old Porter Road or Samuelson Road or Hamstrom Road where the, rail, the train tracks go, and I see the train moving really fast, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I always stay way back. Now, I don't know if I've seen too many movies where the train derails. Uh, I don't know what exactly has happened, but I'm way back, right? So if you're ever behind a long line of cars and there's this big gap and you're like, what's up with the idiot who's, that's me, right? I'm that guy. Uh, I'm way back because I'm like, if the train derails, it is going to squash all of those cars like a bug. And I don't want to be a bug. So I back way up from the thing because I'm afraid of the train derailing. Now, you know, if you've seen on the news when a train derails, it, I don't know how much it costs, but it's thousands, probably millions of dollars, especially if there's an environmental thing involved. It's a huge mess when a train derails. How much more a life when a life derails? But now here's the thing with a life. When someone's life derails because of the, the hungers of their body and their appetites that rule them, they don't know it until it's too late. It's a silent derailment. Uh, I went to college with a guy who, two or three doors down from me in my first year in college, and I noticed that he slept a lot. And the more the semester wore on, the more he slept. In fact, one time I just asked him, I said, dude, how, how, how much are you sleeping? And he said, well, I sleep about 20 hours a day. Like, What? I mean, it just caught up with him, right? His body just got used to sleeping all the time, and his parents spent a bunch of money to send him to college, and he now wasted it. But see, it was silent. He didn't know until it was too late. Oh, no, I've derailed my education. Well, it's like that with a life. You can derail your life from your appetites and your body hungers. Now, why, now why does this matter? Because you might be saying, especially if you're a person who's exploring faith, and we love it if you're here and you're exploring faith, and you're trying to figure all this out, and you're trying to figure out if this is for you. We love it that you're here. But if you're in that camp, you might say, now what's the deal? Like, that's the thing I don't like about Christian people, is they're kind of, they're kind of, uh, they're just worried about stuff. They're worried about all the wrong things. In fact, I grew up uh, thinking that, you know, Christians, they were just prudes, uh, or they were killjoys. And so you might have that experience, but here's what I hope for you if you're in that, in that uh, place in your life, or you're exploring. Hopefully you'll see as we talk about this, that Christianity actually offers a genuine way out of the self-inflicted pain that so many of us are in. And we're, we're, the CDC, the Center of Disease Control, has declared Porter County at epidemic levels of addiction. 
they don't just say that because it sounds good. They say that because there's a certain number at which they say, it's an epidemic. And I, I hope you can see that there's a lot of self-inflicted pain around us and that Christianity offers an actual way out of that. You could hopefully see it that way. But I'm really talking to you if you're a follower of Jesus, and, and I'm trying to talk to you because there's something bigger at stake, and what's at stake is that you could waste your life. Instead of having a genuine mission for your life, you could have what one person calls a shadow mission for your life, and you could give yourself to things that really don't matter. Like, you're going to eat some good food, and you're going to be liked by a few people, and you'll be somebody or, uh, somewhere somehow, be somebody important, and that's it. It's one of the saddest things that I do as a pastor when someone calls me and they say, you know, I had this person in my life die, could you please do the funeral? And I've told you this before and I'll, I'll tell you again, but I, I show up at the door with a, a, with a notepad and sometimes I don't know the person and I, and I say, tell me about them. And I have a series of questions that I ask. And it's happened again and again. I leave so sad every time I think, oh man. And the most that the person can tell me, they say, we loved him and he loved us and that's all great. They'll say something like, well, he loved fishing. I mean, it's not bad to love fishing, but is that it? At the end of your life, you want that to be the thing you're remembered for? I mean, you could waste your life on things that just don't, in the end, don't really matter. So this is incredibly important. So if you know, we're walking through Matthew's manual on how to follow Jesus. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you remember I had these letters on the stage? I think we have a picture of them in Matthew, following Jesus... You can give me that next slide if you would, is about the kingdom of God. So following Jesus is about the kingdom of God. God, you're in charge of my life. Matthew talks about this all the way through his gospel. Um, it's about the mission that you have. You have a purpose in life. God has needs of other people for you to meet. You've got to figure out what it is. You have a mission in life. And that we're to make disciples. These are the things that Matthew talks about all the way through his gospel and that we're working our way through. And here, here's what I mean by that. Disciples, followers of Jesus, disciples are people who do the stuff. Disciples are people who do the stuff. What do I mean by that? Well, yesterday, uh, I went with some of the folks from here up to Chicago and Team World Vision. If you've been here, we've, you know, we have a partnership with them and, and help them run races and raise money to eradicate the clean water drinking crisis. Went up there last, uh, yesterday to Chicago and they had a training day for leaders from around the country and sat there and this room was full in this hotel in downtown Chicago of all these people from around the country who were passionate followers of Jesus and they were there because they were like, we do the stuff, right? We follow Jesus, and we're going to, in our lifetime, they've said, we want to set a goal of eradicating the clean water drinking crisis. Did, did you know there are places in the world that kids don't make it past the age of five simply because they have no clean water and they die of diarrhea? And this actually happens in our world. And they said, disciples do the stuff. We're not going to sit by and let that happen. Kujip uh, Hospital, I told you about, we, you'll, we, we support and we do things for them, and, and Scott Dooley will be here in the fall and talk about that. It, they're there, all these passionate people who could make lots of money in the health field. They move around the world to a place where they make almost nothing. And the reason they're there, you know why they're there? Because they would tell you, well, the disciples, disciples, that's what we do. We do the stuff, right? We make the difference. We're the ones who, who when it's bad and it's broken, we walk in and we make a difference. This is why the, the people who run the Portage Community Garden across the street, they're disciples of Jesus. We do the stuff, right? We feed the hungry. That's why uh, Marriage Matters, all the people who are part of that on Thursday night, they do the stuff. That's why we have kids' ministry, student because we do the stuff, right? We make the difference. We're the ones who make the difference. And if you give in to your temptations, if you do not beat your temptations, you will never live the kind of life where you do the stuff. You'll always be, you'll be derailed. You'll never get there. It'll never actually happen. 
we won't move forward. So here's what Matthew does. Matthew walks us right through the temptations of Jesus so that we can know what to expect that the devil's going to throw at us, and then we can see how Jesus responds so that we can respond the same way. Now, here's, here's the deal with these temptations. The people who are wise about these kinds of things, they've said for a couple thousand years now, when, when you read this account of Jesus' temptations, we're going to look at one of them today, about appetites and hungers. Next week, we'll talk about another one, and, the, and week, uh, two weeks from now, we'll talk about another one. But these are the basic temptations that have tripped up humanity forever, and everyone struggles with them, and everyone is doing something about them. Now, notice I didn't say everyone needs to do something about them. I said everyone is doing something about them. You are doing something about these temptations. It just might be that what you are doing is derailing your life, right? You're doing something. It's the question of what is it that you're doing about that? Because now remember, when we talked about temptation last week, we said temptation is what you feel when your desires try to overcome your pain without God. So what does Matthew say happens? Okay, so he says that Jesus is in the desert, and we'll throw the verses on the screen for you so you can read it, and it says that he was there tempted by the devil, and that he fasted for 40 days and nights, and that he was hungry. Now, 40 days and 40 nights is kind of the Bible's way of, shorthand way of saying a really long time. Uh, so Jesus is there, and he's fasted, he hasn't eaten, and he's hungry. And so what we're, what we're meant to see is that this is the temptation about the hungers and the appetites that can kill your soul. Now, again, you may say, this is why Christians are killjoys, and, and what's the problem with this? Why are you hung up on this? Uh, in ancient Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to some Christians in ancient Corinth, which was like the Las Vegas of their day, and he said they had this saying, and he quoted it back to them. He said, you know, they would say, well, you know, the food's for stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, you have a body part. It has urges. You might as well just fulfill them because that's what it's there for, and, and some people might say, why are Christians so hung up on it? I mean, that's like that's kind of the deal, but here's, here's, here's the reality, is that you can be ruled by these things, and they can control them. They can control you, these body hungers. Now, what are the, what are the, what are the main body hungers? I'm going to talk just briefly about three. I'm not going to go into great detail, but the body hungers that can trip you up, keep you from living the life that God meant you to live, are sex, food, and pleasure. Now, you need to understand that the Bible is not down on any of these things. In fact, the Bible is unilaterally positive on all three of those things. But the Bible is also unilaterally against any of those things controlling you. That's, that's where the rub is. So let's, let's pay attention to them for just a second and see what we can understand about them. There's, there's the, the pattern all the way through the Bible is that God creates the world, that there's a fall that we, we make, we choose the apple, if you were here last week, uh, then God comes himself into the world in, in Jesus and redeems the world, pays for the sins of the world, and that coming is the restoration of everything in heaven, and we look forward to that with hope, and it gives us hope to endure the sufferings of the present moment. So there's creation, there's fall, there's redemption, and there's restoration. So if you applied that to each of these things, what do we, what do we see about these body hungers? Well, if you think about sex, in the, in the beginning when God created the world, it was good. There was a man and a woman, and it was good. And then what happens is there's the fall, and then there's all these distorted practices that enter the world about sex. There's just every manner of thing you can possibly think of. In fact, some people will say, well, Bible's not for traditional marriage, because traditional marriage in the Bible is polygamy. Well, if you read from Genesis 3 on, it is, because there's all these kinds of crazy things, but that's an expression of the distorted picture, not the created picture. Do you, under, do you see that? And what happens when you, we distort anything is we begin to worship it, and it becomes an idol. And so 
when we worship something, we ask that thing to save us. And so I, I know so many people who want sex and think that sex will save them from loneliness. If I just had a guy, if I just had a girl, if I wouldn't be lonely anymore. See, you're asking it to save you from something. Uh, but then what happens is Jesus comes and he, he dies for the sins of the world, the sexual sins of the world, and he dies to redeem them. And what, what happens? It's kind of surprising. It's something different. What happens then is singleness becomes something that's honored. See, Jesus was single. We think the, the Apostle Paul was single. And what happens is instead of saying, you know, you're, you're the best and you're okay when you've got someone else that you can be uh, sexually active with, no, singleness is honored. So and what happens then when heaven comes, when restoration of all things happens, is, is sex will be surpassed. So this is what Jesus came to tell us, is that the ultimate experience a human being can have is an unbarriered relationship between you and God, not sex. See, if you think, that, if you think that's the ultimate thing that you can have, it's an idol to you. you don't, you're worshiping it, and you're thinking it's going to save you from something, and it won't. The ultimate relationship, Jesus says, that we can have is between us and God. So what about food, right? So when God creates, God gives us everything. The food's, a, food's good. It's a gift that nour- nourishes us and that we enjoy it. But then the fall happens and then food gets distorted and we have this weird relationship with food. Is it odd to anyone else that there are places around the world where people cannot get enough to eat and they will starve to death today and yet here in our country we can't stop eating? I mean, do, do, we, do we not have a distorted relationship with food? I mean, we, we, and when, again, when you distort anything, you, you begin to worship it, and it becomes an idol, and so you ask it to save you from things. And so I know so many people who are asking food to save them from something that hurt them. It's why we call it comfort food, right? Oh, I feel bad. Some fried chicken, right? <laughs> so what is food? When Jesus redeems all that, and he pays for the sins where we're looking for something else other than God to heal us from our hurt, what does Jesus do? Well, food then becomes a way to build a relationship and build closeness. If you've ever had me ask you uh, to, to meet, I've always, you'll notice I've always asked you to either, hey, do you want to have lunch? Do you want to have breakfast? Do you, do you want to come over? Uh, do you want to have some coffee? It's always over food because, see, food is a way to bring people together. If you want to bring someone together, invite them over. You want to get to know somebody? Invite them over. Food's a way uh, to deepen relationships, and you can bond over a meal. And then when, when God restores everything, in fact, Revelation says, that in heaven, it, it kicks off with what's called the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus is the lamb, the innocent lamb slain for the sins of the world. Like, you go to a wedding, right? You go to a great wedding, and, and everything's flowing, and the food is delicious, and the cake is fantastic, and you just want to stay there and party, and it's just a great time. Like, the picture of heaven is it's that times ten. It's the best food you've ever had in your entire life. It's a celebration. See, God, uh, God changes our relationship to food. But then the pleasure itself, right? When God creates it, God says, gives us everything and says that it's good. Pleasure's not bad. Pleasure's very good. But then the fall enters in, and we, we feel pleasure, and we want to feel pleasure so that we can avoid pain. See, we begin to worship pleasure, and we ask it to save us from pain. If I, if I just do this, then I'll feel okay, and I won't have to feel the pain that I've been going through. I won't have to feel that anymore. And so what happens when Jesus comes in and redeems that? Well, the pleasure then comes from loving one another. This is why, see, what what the church is, is the family of God's people. It's not perfect people. It's people who make mistakes. It's people who mess things up. But it's, it's where you learn to practice love. 
and the amount of, of pleasure that comes from learning to love another person, not in a, not in a, a sexual way, but in, in a, a close friendship where you let someone in and you, go, you, you enter into the depths of another human being, you let them close. The pleasure that comes from that love is immense. That's when Jesus redeems it. That's what he does. He, you learn to love a new command I give you. Love one another. See, what happens on the backside of that is tremendous amounts of pleasure. And then even the picture of heaven, when, when God restores everything, is that one writer in the Bible calls it, it says, pleasures evermore. God, sex, food, and, and pleasure are not bad things. But those are the body hungers. That's what this temptation is about. Well, what then happens? Well, the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God. Now notice, this is what the devil always does to us, always comes to us first and questions our identity and asks us to prove that we're worth it. Now, I'm not talking about your job performance. I'm not talking about going to work tomorrow. I know some of you would like to say to your boss, you're the devil! Um, <laughs> or my pastor said, you're the devil! I don't, 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 please don't throw me under the bus like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an internal voice that says to you, you have to prove it to be, to be okay. It's this, that's, that's the lie from the pit of hell. That's where the devil always starts. It's one of his main schemes. It's one of his main tools is to get us to question who we are. And he says to Jesus, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus is hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never walked past a stone and had the temptation to turn it into bread. That's never existed for me. So how do we, what do we learn from that? Well, um, here's, what, here's what the devil was asking Jesus to do. He was asking him to use his power to fix the problem without reference to God. I've been tempted by that a lot of times. So here's what Jesus responds. He says, Jesus answered, it is written. Now, we'll look at it this week, the next two weeks. Every time the temptation comes, the first thing that Jesus responds when the temptation comes to him is he says, it is written. In other words, he quotes the Bible. Now, we don't think that this is a very smart strategy. Jesus thought it was the greatest strategy. He knew the Bible. He loved uh, the stories of the Bible. He understood what the Bible was about, that the Bible revealed what God's like to us and that what we're like to God and how we can be in a right relationship with God. And so he understood the context of the Bible and he read the Bible and memorized the Bible. It was a part of, of what, he, we don't think that's a great strategy. Jesus was very smart and knew it was a great strategy. In fact, he quotes then Deuteronomy chapter 8 and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. There are two words where we get life, uh, two, we get the meaning word life from the Greek language. One is where we get the word zoo, the, the Greek word is zoe. Uh, the other word is where we get the word biology, bios, uh, life. So zoo is kind of what you would think. It's kind of, you know, you go to the zoo, there's so much life, they have to put it in a cage so it doesn't eat you, right? Life. That's the word that's used here, zoe, not the word bios, which kind of conjures up the image of a laboratory. But here's, here's what Jesus is saying. We think that unless we engage our body hungers, we can't really live. Man, I am really living. Woo! Because I'm engaged in my body hungers, right? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Man does not live, does not, not thrive on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, you can indulge your body hungers and think that's really living. But Jesus says, if you really want to live, you need to indulge every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's where, you, that's where life really starts to go wild in the right way. So here, here's the word. Here's what he says. The word is not just the word word. It's the word that means an active relationship with God that causes you to do the stuff. It's a calling. 
It's why when we did the Christmas offering and some of you nominated someone and um, you took the check to that person and then you emailed back and you said things like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. It was so me. I was crying and they were crying. And why? Because you had a calling. You were doing the stuff. You'd heard God's word to meet a need of another human being and it was changing you. See, this is, you live from the words that cause you to do the stuff. So how do you overcome temptation? I'm going to give you three things. If you remember, um, we talked about three things last week. We're going to do them every week and look at uh, the angle on how to resist that particular temptation, but that you resist it, that you diagnose the pain, and that you love God. Those are the three steps to uh, overcoming any temptation. And if you remember on the idea of resisting it, remember the image I gave you from Martin Luther? Like he said that you, you can't uh, keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep a bird from building a nest in your hair. And so remember I told you if you would go around this week, it'd be really cool if you're walking in mire and you see people swatting that bird like that, right? Like waving it away. Like I don't want, I did that a couple times and it looked like an idiot and you left me hanging. Thanks. Um, but here's, I want you to know that it, you're not alone, okay? Remember last week we said that no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. Everybody is tempted. So I, we're going to put it out on social media. You don't have to explain the details just so you know you're not alone, but you know what a hashtag is. I had to explain it to the 9 o'clock service because some of them are, are a little older. I think you guys know what a hashtag is, right? You can click on it on social media, and you can see what anybody has said about that particular topic. It's a way to group conversations. So here's the, here's the hashtag. You can just post it on Facebook. You can put it on Twitter. You can put it on Instagram. Here's the, here's the hashtag we're gonna, that'll let us know we're not alone, right? Swat the bird. Swat the bird, right? So when you're tempted this week, the start is you go, oh, I've got to swat the bird. Hashtag swat the bird, right? <laughs> so here's how Paul says it. He says, this is how you swat the bird. He says, I do not run, he says to the Christians in Corinth, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike, is it on the screen? Yep. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. And so it's this word, it sounds like a dirty word to us, and the word is, he disciplines himself. Now, how many, I took a poll in the first service, how many of you, when you hear the word discipline, you just love it? <laughs> One person. Awesome. You are, you're my man, Paul. I love you. It's a negative word to us, isn't it? Because it conjures up the idea that we're doing something wrong and we're in trouble, but that's not what it really is. I'll tell you the best definition I've ever heard of discipline, and this is it. Uh, discipline is doing what I can in order to do what I can't. Discipline is doing what I can, what's in my power right now to do in order to do something that I can't, something that's not in my power right now to do. Someone hurt me really bad, and I would love to be able to forgive them, and I can't do it right now because I'm too worked up about how they hurt me. But you know what I can do right now is I can keep my mouth shut and not say something bad about them. That's discipline. Um, what, what discipline does is it puts you in the place to get you the result that you want. There are athletes training right now for the games, the Olympic Games this summer in Rio de Janeiro, and they are, they are training their bodies. They are disciplining. They're doing what they can right now in order to do what they can't right now, which is win the gold medal. Uh, if it's, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be a really positive thing. Think about if there was an Olympic sport, and this would be great, I'd enter, uh, if there were a pie-eating contest in the Olympics. How would you train for a pie-eating contest? Would you avoid pie and Oh, sorry, I'm training for, no, you would eat loads of pie, right? Sign me up. A banana cream, chocolate cream, French silk, come on, bring it, right? You'd, you'd be wanting all the pie, wouldn't you? That's how you would train. So, so discipline doesn't have to be a bad thing. Uh, my kids um, uh, uh, at night have a tough time going to sleep sometimes. I, um, I confess this in the first service, and I, I need to get it off my chest again because it's therapy for me. Thank you. 
I don't have to pay a therapist this week. Uh, but if your kids were really little, uh, bedtime when our kids were little, really little was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it was all snuggles and stories and no one could talk back or get out of bed. <laughs> and now I kind of want to shoot my children at night. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, go to bed. Right? I don't know if anyone else. It's just me, right? Okay. But my kids will come out after being in bed for five minutes. And they'll go, Dad, I can't sleep. Like, you've, been out, you've, been, you've been landing for five minutes, buddy. Go back to bed. I can't sleep. So you know what I tell them every time? I say, listen, you know the best way to go to sleep is to go into a dark room and to lay flat on a bed and pull the covers over yourself and then lay your head on a pillow. <laughs> and, and when you lay your head on a pillow, magically sleep appears like a gift. So this is, a, this is just an image for you, right, of, of a discipline. See, you, you do what you can. I can't go to sleep. Well, I can lay my head on a pillow. You do what you can in order to do what you can't. And so I'm going to give you two, uh, two, well, two, <laughs> two disciplines for your body to, uh, to uh, help you resist the body hungers. Two of them. They're simple. One is that you would fast. Now, fast means that you don't eat for a period of time. I would not suggest that you go try and fast for an entire day, you'll probably fail. I tried to do two days one time, and uh, I failed miserably. I wouldn't suggest that. What I would suggest, though, is that you would take a meal, figure out a meal, maybe a lunch or a breakfast or a dinner um, this week, and try it for a month, and take that meal and decide not to eat. Now, Jesus says that when you fast, don't tell people about it. Don't go, oh, I can't, I'm fasting. Uh, just, just say, ah, thank you, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not eating today. And then you take that time and you pray. And what happens when you fast is you find out what controls your body. But again, it's a discipline. It's something that you can do. And you find that you can resist food for a meal. You find you can resist other urges of your body. It's a discipline. The second one is the discipline of what some people have called simplicity, which is simply looking around your life and realizing that you have enough. Say that with me. Say, I have enough. Ready? I have enough. Turn to your neighbor and say, I have enough. I have enough. I have enough. You look around. You look at your television, and you say, I don't need a bigger television. I have enough. You look at your car, and like my, my wife was in a little fender bender, and the, the fender got busted up, and so you'll see some duct tape on it soon. Hey, I got enough. I'm good. I'm golden. We have enough. You look around, and you go, I've got enough shirts. I've got enough pants. I've got enough shoes. I'm not saying it's bad to have any of those things, but the discipline is I can right now resist the need to add more to my life and be okay, right? So here's what the result of it is that you learn to be content. Paul says it in Philippians 4 like this, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. What if you could learn that secret? Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this. Steph Curry made this famous on his shoes. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Contentment. So uh, resist, diagnose your pain, right? Uh, how, how do you diagnose your pain in relation to body hungers? Well, it's, it's, I think it's really simple. Um, it's, it's a hashtag thing, right? FOMO. Do you know what that means, FOMO? Fear of missing out. Oh, if I don't indulge this, what will, I, where, will I ever feel pleasure again? Will it ever come by again? I better get it now. See, the lie behind it is that, listen, there won't be enough. I have to have it right now. It's just a lie. You diagnose the pain that's coming. Is this, this, I got to take it right now or, or it'll never come again. And then the third thing is, is that you've got to learn to love God, and I would love it if you would be a disciple who learns to love God's word, learns to love the scriptures. 
I've uh, read the scriptures for, for 25 years now. I've tried to understand them for 25 years. And I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I didn't, there was a lot I didn't get. I didn't understand. What's this mean? What's that mean? What's this story about? Why do they write it like that? I, I, all the questions that you have when you read the Bible. I, I, I'm not telling you I know everything about the Bible. I still read things and say, what does that mean? I don't quite understand that. But I love the Bible and love what it reveals to me about God and myself way more than I did even three years ago. The Bible's way richer to me today than it was a year ago because I read it all the time. And you could be that same kind of person. You can become the, per the kind of person who develops the discipline, doing what you can, of reading and meditating on the scriptures. And then what happens is it does two things. One, it helps you resist the devil. The psalmist says it this way, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, it helps you prioritize what God says over what you are currently feeling. I promise if you will read the scriptures and you'll memorize them when the moment of temptation comes, because this is what Jesus said God's spirit would do for us, is he would remind us of the truth. And this, 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 like, this thought will come in your head and you'll go, oh, and that's the thing you latch on to and what you use to resist the temptation. And then the second thing is that it guides you. Uh, the psalmist said it like this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Listen, people who read the scriptures on a regular basis and who've done it for years and have, over a lifetime learned to love God's word, what they have found is that they are not people who are what often Christians are criticized as, as judgmental and harsh and critical. They're in fact, they're the exact opposite because they read about what God's like and they read about how broken they are and they realize it's true, and so they have, the judgment starts to go away, and the criticism starts to go away, and the harshness starts to go away, and a grace and a peace and a sweetness comes over their personality. I mean, the people who really read the Bible, that's, this is what they're like, because they find out the truth about themselves and about God in reading the Bible, and God's word has become a path that lights their feet, lights, it tells them where they're needing to go. So what do you need to do today? What do you need to do to respond to this? What's the body hunger that's got you? Is it in the middle? Are you gonna, is your life going to derail? You keep, doing, you keep doing what you're, gonna, you're doing right now in three months. Is your life going to be derailed in six months, in a year? Do you understand uh, what's the pain? Do you, you understand how you've used these hungers that you have to make yourself feel better? Do you understand that? Do you understand the lie behind that? Are you willing to let God's word become more a part of who you are and Read the scriptures so that you become a different kind of a person. See, this is the invitation because Jesus wants you to be free from things that would control you. I'd like that for you too. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? God, I'm so grateful that, uh, that you know what it's like to be tempted and we don't go a day without some form of temptation coming our way, and oftentimes we fail. We let our desire try to overcome our pain without you, and so we give in. The bird builds a nest in our hair. Thank you that that is never the end with you, that there's always the hope of forgiveness. There's always the hope of a clean slate. Thank you that you're our Father who loves his kids and wants them to be free and never gives up on us. And so we, this morning, we claim that freedom. We ask for it in our hearts and in our bodies. God, give us the, give us the understanding of uh, how you can change our bodies to do different things, and our body can then become a tool that we master instead of something that masters us. 
It become a tool that we use to do the stuff, to make a difference in the world. God, we want to be those kind of people. So as we uh, submit to your leadership in our life, would you heal us of the pain? Would you heal us of the hurt? Would you help us to see that we can turn to you when we hurt? And that the healing uh, balm of your love can change our condition. We ask for this in your son's name. All God's people said, amen. We always leave you with a blessing. You'll see people holding out their hand as a tangible way of receiving that. And if you'd like to receive that, um, you can do this as well. If you're not comfortable with that, that's okay, but receive this blessing. May you know the love of God for you, enabling you to love people and serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See ya. Prayer team's down front. <laughs>